This episode of Paper Team is brought to you by Roadmap Writers. Roadmap Writers is a screenwriting education and training platform for writers looking for a guided path to success. Programs are hosted by working industry executives and are designed to empower writers with actionable tools and insights to elevate their craft and cultivate industry relationships. Since 2016, Roadmap has helped more than 84 writers sign to representation and countless other writers get staffed, optioned, or sell their script. To learn more, visit RoadmapWriters.com and use the code PAPERTEAM, all caps, all one word, to save $15. Roadmap Writers, the road to your screenwriting success starts here. Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today, from pitching and staffing your writer's room to the story breaking process and production of the series, we will be talking all about showrunning the Netflix post apocalyptic dramedy Daybreak with a very special guest. Yeah, we're joined by Aaron Eli Colite, the executive producer, co creator, and showrunner of Netflix's Daybreak. And he's previously written for Heroes, Star Trek Discovery, and Ultimate X Men. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. Thanks for being here, and uh, let's get started. So first up, how did you get your start in the industry, and what was your first TV writing gig? My first TV writing gig was on a show called Crossing Jordan. I got my start in the industry actually way before that, though. Uh, My very first job was on a show called Party of Five, which, ironically, there is the Freeform reboot coming up mm-hmm. very quickly. <laughs> but I got my job as a, as a writer's assistant. I was actually a director's assistant first to uh, Dan Adias, and then I became a showrunner's assistant to P.K. Simmons. I, like many, many people, struggled to find that first gig. Was very, very lucky to find a job on Party of Five. I didn't want to be a director. I knew I wanted to be a writer, so it was writing adjacent <laughs> and and even the very first job that i got as as pk simmons assistants in the writing room i didn't want it um <laughs> you know at the time i thought that the way to get your to get on staff would be as the script coordinator like that was the job that i was told that's gonna get you in the writer's room you're dealing with the scripts i didn't want to be somebody's assistant and pk called me and said, I'd love to offer you the showrunner's assistant job. And I said, I need to think about it. <laughs> and I didn't know what I was doing at the time. I really wanted the script coordinator job. And then Amy Lipman, the creator of Party Five, called me and said, sorry, what are you thinking? <laughs> like, PK's amazing. And this is the job. And this is the path. And you need to take this. <laughs> and a lot of my... <laughs> A lot of my career feels like it has happened like that, <laughs> that I thought I was going to do one thing and another opportunity presented itself. And that is where I wanted to go. The same thing happened with me on Crossing Jordan. I had been working as PK's assistant. And, uh, you know, when you're working as an assistant, you make lots of friends with all the writers. And that is definitely the path to becoming a writer is, you know, you whether you use the word networking I use the word, it's like you're making friendships. You're trying to learn from them. You're trying to find mentors. You're trying to find people to help you not only get your next job, but help you become a better writer and understand the process. And the same thing happened across Jordan, where several friends, Ian Biederman uh, and Gary Glassberg, who, uh, you know, unfortunately passed away several years ago. He was a showrunner for NCIS. They're both working across Jordan. They both called me and said, we need a research assistant on Crossing Jordan you're coming here. And my first thought was, no, you know, 
uh, it's a procedural and I don't want to, you know, I don't think it's what I want to write. And I'm, I was more on drama side. Like I, I like party of five and, and I want to make dramas and they're like, idiot, this is a great opportunity. <laughs> this is a great show. And I met Tim Kring and Tim was like, you have to come do this. And I, and, and it was way out of my comfort zone, especially dealing with, uh, you know, researching dead bodies, researching how crimes are committed, researching all <laughs> this stuff um, was not something I was I was comfortable with or used to. But I dove into it and taking that job changed my career and changed my life. And to that idea, uh, obviously, being a showrunner requires a very specific uh, set of skills. Can you walk us through what skills you feel make for a good showrunner and also working on all these different shows, what each show has taught you to be a good showrunner? Absolutely. Um I love how you describe being a showrunner as like being Liam Neeson and Taken. It's like you have to have a very special set of skills. It's interesting because when you're coming up as a writer, when you're making your way up the levels of various of, of the staff, none of the skills that you learn in crafting an episode and executing it prepare you for being a showrunner. It's a really different skill set and it's a really different set of tools that you are using. I think I was very fortunate enough to to work with some very amazing showrunners and mentors in the form of Tim Kring or Michael Green, people who who trusted me and and who part of what they did was was they sent me to set. So you're producing on set and you're understanding what's what it's like to be on set. You're in post, you're in editorial, you're learning those skills as well. You want to gather as many weapons in your arsenal before heading into your first showrunning experience because nothing still even then nothing will prepare you for it the one thing i will say though is is that you know my overnight success took 25 years it took me a long time to get my first show <laughs> you know we're trained uh as writers as people to believe like you know you want to come out of film school you have your sample pilot you sell it and then you're ready to run a show and, and not only that, but like, and then you have to have like an empire, you have to have three shows and it's hard enough to do one and it takes time to get there. And I think that what my experience has been on working on various shows has all been about building this, whether it's a tough skin or whether it's a set of skills to understand. I've seen now every single problem that can occur <laughs> on a show, I've seen a variation of it. I have seen everything you can imagine from showrunners being fired to bombs coming from networks of we have to blow up the entire season to actors refusing to come out of, of trailers, which actually does happen to, to, you know, the script just not working to getting a draft in and it just not being what you want it to be. And I think handling everything with a deep breath with calm reserve and, and not getting aggressive about anything allows you to really handle any single problem. You can also get a diva whisper to get those actors out of the trailer park. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it's just, a, you know, I think that at the end of the day, like most everybody just wants to be heard and everybody wants to be seen, whether it's, whether it's your audience or your actors or your craft service people, everybody wants to feel like they are part of the show. If there's anything that I kind of take to being a showrunner that's a little bit maybe different than other people is I'm I'm a person who actually doesn't love the term showrunner. Um, I don't know if anybody else has said that to you. You know, it's it's a term that I get a little uncomfortable with because it's it's essentially anointing yourself as 
king of the series. And yeah, you do need a captain at the head of the ship. I really like to think of myself more as a curator. And what I attempt to do in whether it's staffing or putting together production heads, it is I want to bring together a community of people who all want to make the same show and who are all rowing in the same direction. I think one of my primary jobs is to allow people to do their job the best they can and not only the best they can, but to get excited about what they're doing. What you want more than anything as a showrunner is people to come to work every single day and feel like they are contributing to the creative process and feel like they are making a big difference. And so no matter if it's in a script that I write or just my personal interactions, it's about like, how do I jazz these people up so that they want to do their best work? And that's my job. I think that's the role of a good showrunner, not the person who sits and says, it has to be this way or it's dictated on high and you feel like you're not really because I've been a part of those rooms or I've been a part of the process where it feels like you're not really contributing. And mine is a, is all about, you know, transparency and inclusion. So on the flip side of that, now that you have been a showrunner, what advice would you give yourself as a younger writer when you were first starting out on a show that you kind of wish you knew? I would tell my younger self to be patient. <laughs> it's a really hard lesson. I think that it's a really good question. It's a really hard question because I, I yeah, you you go through a lot of, especially as being a young staff writer, of, of trying to feel like, why aren't I running a show already? Why aren't I doing what I see everybody else doing? And I think that our business is filled with a lot of uh, professional jealousy, <laughs> I would call it, of you don't understand why that person has a show or why that person's succeeding and why not me? And, you know, it might be unpopular to talk about such things, but it's like it's in our hearts. And I think that the thing that we all need to kind of st- it's it would be great if we could stop doing it. It would be great if I could go back in time and tell my younger self, like, it's going to be OK. And the path that you take to get to wherever you're going, that's the path. You can't really control a lot of what you do. What you can control is what you write. And that has always been kind of the best thing that I can always go back to is no matter if it's a show that I'm working on that I hate or I love, you can all the best thing about writing is like you can always be writing something else and no one's going to stop you from writing something that you feel really passionate about or something that you want to do, you know, you can execute it. The thing there, I mean, it's something that that's not about Daybreak or not about any of the uh, the TV experience I have. But even, I wrote a feature script. My very first feature script was a, a screenplay called The End. I showed it to my agent. My agent was like, "What the hell is this? What am I supposed to do with this? What I I can't sell this. I can't show this to people. Like this is." This is this is nothing. And and apparently I'm not really into the end of the world and post-apocalypse stuff, but it's <laughs> the basic gist of the, of the screenplay was it was the last six hours on Earth. A little like what the, the Roland Emmerich 2012, but the, the, the independent movie version. <laughs> it was three stories all around the world, uh, but very intimate, small stories. And they were like, this is for nobody. Um, and I was like, well, this is this is what I this is what I wanted to write. This is what was in my heart. And. Eventually, it got me on the blacklist. Eventually, it got me a lot of feature work and and has paid 
itself off. Um, but it was because it was something that I really wanted to write. Kind of came full circle with Daybreak in a way. In a way, it's it's. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if I have an oeuvre, it's I guess it's it's dystopian post apocalypse <laughs> end of the world uh, uh, storytelling. That's a great uh, marker. It's now, good preparation exactly <laughs> to go into uh, Daybreak. Can you walk us through how Daybreak came about, and was this your first uh, show curating experience? This was my first show curating experience. <laughs> um, it came about um, extremely randomly. The co-creator of the show and the director of the first two episodes, Brad Payton who's an amazing, amazing filmmaker. Uh, we shared a mutual agent. That agent sent me a script called Daybreak, which was a feature that Brad had written. Brad found the graphic novel and had written this feature. And it had a little bit more in common with Warm Bodies or Zombieland. It wasn't exactly the humorous show it became. It was much more closely aligned to the graphic novel, which is a wonderful graphic novel written by Brian Ralph. Um, but it had somebody breaking the fourth wall, talking directly to us in Ferris Bueller's Day Off style. And actually, Brad and I were supposed to talk about a completely different comic book adaptation. And I met with him and his producing partner, Jeff Fierson. And they said, hey, let's start talking about this comic book. And I go, I actually have to stop you. And I know this is really unpopular to do in a meeting. I don't want to talk about that comic book at all. <laughs> um, I actually, I don't, I don't think it's adaptable. It's like, it's, it's not for me. <laughs> I want to talk to you guys about Daybreak. What's going on with it? Where'd this come from? Why did you write this? I'm like, I'm, I'm obsessed about this idea. And, and it had been a script that they had just sent out. Warm Bodies had recently come out. It didn't do so great at the box office. And zombie as an as a genre and and walking dead existed and people were feeling zombie fatigue and so nobody wanted to do this script and we started talking about it because the, there was something at the core of it that really spoke to me which was this character who kind of looked at the zombie apocalypse as the best thing that ever happened to him and it was so refreshing and it was so kind of just a just it it turned the dial on on the post-apocalyptic world just ever so slightly into a wish fulfillment direction mm -hmm. that it intrigued me. And, and it, and it really reminded me of my own, you know, my own coming of age story. There was a movie when I was growing up that was on HBO probably every single afternoon called night of the comet, which I don't know if you've seen it. Um, it's relatively obscure. <laughs> um, and I loved it. And in it, a comet passes by earth most of everybody and the adults die. Most of the kids survive and they go hog wild. They go to the mall. The first thing they do is not, you know, put on leather chaps or, 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 you know, get all stinky and sweaty and, and, and cry and weep and go, oh, well, as me. No, no, no. They do what most kids would do. They go to the mall. They go shopping. They get the best cars. And I was like, that's exactly what I would do. I would live my, if all the parents went away right now, I would live my best life. I would reinvent myself and I would sit in junior high and high school and think, man, if the world ended, yeah, I'd be sad for a minute, but like, I'd be okay. And I'd have the opportunity, like, I'm an, I'm an outsider. I'm a nerd. I would have that opportunity to really redefine myself. So the people who think of me as one way, I could show them I was something else. And I think that's a really universal feeling that a lot of kids have growing up. And whether that's today or, 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 or back in the 80s and 90s when I was growing up, 
I think that's a really universal feeling of feeling like an outsider. Mm -hmm. And Brad and I and Jeff started talking about that feeling. And what we realized was there's a really interesting idea. If instead of taking it in the kind of the zombie land, real, you know, making another zombie apocalypse, we can make this kind of kid apocalypse. Mm -hmm. This teenage wasteland, to quote Bob O'Reilly, where, where they were living their best lives that had more in common with Mad Max uh, and Ferris Bueller's Day Off than it had with Walking Dead. So after you kind of found this idea, how did you approach kind of pitching it around to networks? Um, do you have any advice on that process? I have lots of advice on that process. And we only took it one place. We took it to Netflix. And they said, no. <laughs> um, uh, they said, they said, we did this really wonderful pitch. We gave them Brad's script and we said, and, and they read it and they said, yeah, no. They said, we have Sam Clarita diet and that's kind of a more pure zombie comedy. And we we're like, it's not a, it's again, we're not really doing a zombie comedy. Like, like, please read it. Uh, but they said, they said, no, thank you. And <laughs> we, we didn't give up. And the thing is, is that there's a couple of assistants at Netflix who read it and they kept on telling a lot of executives, you know, there's something really special here. There's something really unique. And thank goodness for those assistants because we kind of kept the conversation going. And, and, you know, you know, over the next almost two or three years, because I was in a deal at Warner Brothers at the time and Brad was making, um, both Frontier for Netflix, and he was also making Rampage. So we were kind of going our separate ways. I then went on to Star Trek Discovery. We, you know, and we kept on talking about it. Netflix kept on being like, you know, what, you know, are you, are we really going to do this? Can we do this? Can we find another way in? And eventually, I took a pass through the script. Uh, and Brad and I kept on reworking it and finding more of the humor and more of the relatability and more of the emotion uh, started coming through the script and we started talking about well the characters how do we tell their stories how do we you know what's the dna of the show like where do where is it going to go and when we started really building it more and more we eventually got to a place of having a conversation with netflix they love the script now things had changed the world you know was was almost three years later the world had been different netflix was now different there's different executives in charge of different verticals at Netflix. And this was a whole different group of people that we were talking to. And they said, yes. And I think the lesson in a lot of things is you don't give up after your first no, because I think it can feel that way. I think it can feel like you, you get a no, you take it around town or you take it out and you, you know, you get a pass and, and then you can feel like, okay, well that's, that's over. Um, but I think the thing is, it's like, it really does take two or three years to develop material these days. Uh, it takes it takes a lot of perseverance. It takes a lot of belief. It takes a lot of working the material, reworking it, um, and not giving up on on a concept that you know is going to be right. And it got to a place in the concept that I also felt like I'm not sure if I can execute this. <laughs> I come from a real traditional genre storytelling background. I have no comedy training whatsoever. Like I, I, my comedy training is that I watch Rick and Morty and the <laughs> Simpsons, you know, and I've, and I've seen, and, and Monty Python, like that's my comedy training. And so all I can take is, is that stuff that I like and, and apply it to 
okay, I think this is, yeah. I think that I'm not writing jokes, but if I can write something that's a little bit funny to me, I think that I can hopefully try to make people laugh or I can make the ser- the situation seem less grim than it, than it actually is. And kind of pairing those two things of, of the stakes of, of the dystopian apocalypse <laughs> where, where ghoulies are chasing after you and, and kids want to kill you with humor could make something different. This galaxy quest once said, never give up, never surrender. <laughs> <laughs> also a great reference. And now let's move into the, the staffing process for your room. Can you walk us through how you approach staffing that writer's room? If mm-hmm. this was your first time being involved in, in the staffing process and essentially what you looked for in each level of uh, your staff. Absolutely. So there's two things going into this. One is we had an incredibly diverse cast of characters. I'm a guy who grew up in the mean streets of Encino <laughs> in the San Fernando Valley and then when I was, you know, in high school, I moved to Sherman Oaks, which was, you know, tougher. <laughs> so I can tell, you know, my, my, my biography is about the white Jewish male experience growing up in the San Fernando Valley. I have that down pack. I can really <laughs> tell that story. But the characters in Daybreak have a vast array of experiences, you know, and a, and a very different perspective and some, and things that I don't. Have, I'm, I'm still not qualified to write. So I knew I wanted to create this incredibly diverse writer's room that had really different biographies, different people coming from all over the place that they didn't have to come from being TV writers. I needed some TV writers who knew what they were doing, but there was also the ability to have new voices. And I just wanted this incredibly diverse room who I knew would be able to tell these stories and tell authentic stories. I think that was really important to me. One of the things that I do when I am staffing a room is I do not look at the writer's resume before I read their sample. I read samples blind. I recommend everybody read samples blind because you don't want to take any preconceived notions of who the writer is when you're reading the sample. I just want to read a sample. And if I like it, amazing. Then I will look back and be like, oh, my God, they're a staff writer. They're a story editor. They've never written for television before. Or they've written a ton of television. You can always be surprised by who the writer is based on the sample. And in that way, I was really just going off of talent. All I wanted to look for was who's telling the most compelling story. Who's telling narrative in a way that I'm like astonished by and moved by. And all you want to do as when you're, when you are staffing, especially when you're reading and you're reading 250 scripts around 250 to 300 scripts when you're staffing a show, you want to be pulled into that narrative. You want to be pulled into that script so you can't put it down and not have an excuse to, okay, well, I've read 20 pages. I get it. Or I've read, you know, or I've read 10 pages and it's like, this is now a struggle. All you're looking for is that thing that's going to speak to you. Once I was able to be able to say, these is the, this is the group of people that I want to meet with. And once you start meeting with them, then you can kind of start to assemble your Justice League and understand whose superpower is going to be able to tell what person's story and what they add to it. And then how do you go about kind of balancing the staff in the right way in terms of those skills and the, even the chemistry between the you know, writers and things like that? You know, a lot of it is... <laughs> you can't see me what I'm doing. I'm throwing my hands in the air like 
not like I don't just don't care, but like <laughs> you don't know you're creating this group of strangers and putting them together and hoping that there's chemistry, hoping that we're all going to get along with each other is based. And, and, and sometimes <laughs> a lot of the writer's room feels like the longest bar mitzvah that you've ever been to <laughs> um, because like you have to make small talk and then you have to get to know them. And then it's like, and, and yeah, you have to break story. You have to do everything that you need to do. You have work to do, but it's like you're thrown at a table with complete strangers and no one knows each other, really. There is one writer um, in the first season, Andy Black, who I had worked with before, but everybody else was brand new to me. And I didn't want to staff a room filled with all my friends because then no one would challenge me. What I certainly don't want is a group of people who I pitch something as as showrunner, show curator, and everybody's like, oh, that's fantastic. Thanks, boss. <laughs> I don't want that at all. What you want is people to, who you pitch something and they, they go, well here's an issue with that or here's an here's another way of looking at what you're going for i don't want to be the voice on high saying this is the way it is i think my role as showrunner and 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 executive producer creator is to be able to go in a room saying i want a story that that's like this that feels this way i don't know how to necessarily accomplish that Mm -hmm. help me what if we do this when somebody pitches something be able to say that's a great idea Forget what I was talking about. Let's go down that path. So you do have a crapshoot. What I do think is when you're starting to meet with people and, and looking at, there's a fundamental thing that's really that really plays, which is budget. You have a certain budget <laughs> as a show that you can spend, and you want to you know uh, fill that with with upper level, mid level, lower level writers as you know create a diverse enough experience to do it because you do need upper level writers you need people who have done the job before who have experience who can who can really dig in and help and you want to give opportunities to new younger voices younger writers um whether they're young you know and i use that term young very loosely because it could be you know somebody staffing and they're for their first staff job they're in their 40s like there's no it's not about youth versus age it's just experience levels so for me it's about creating diversity amongst their biographies diversity amongst their staff levels maybe using my budget as as effectively (laughs) as i as i possibly can and and using every part of that but really you're taking a risk now you also mentioned reading scripts blind is there something in particular that you're looking for in the scripts that make them or make someone stand out from the pile and uh what are elements in those scripts that uh, you're reading and uh, watching out for you know at this point in my career i've read i can't even tell you how many scripts i've read it's it's in the thousands and what i'm looking for is a genuine voice that is doing something new that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for originality and dialogue, originality in, in, in choosing your scene selections and how you tell a story. I'm looking for, you know, a real, a, just real original voices, especially in a place where, you know, you, you can, you've seen it all before. I mean, we, we joke around and, and, and I will say this is, this, there is something true about this, but like when, I'm just a bag of tricks that that make me a writer. Like I have my tricks that I use time and time again. I'm trying to learn new tricks all the time. But we're we're magicians. We're just we're just trying to like make better match tricks with our words to get an emotional reaction out of the reader. 
That I think is what we're doing. And Rick and Morty certainly ruined one trick for me <laughs> in the Purge episode where you have a scene and then you cut to two weeks earlier. <laughs> and it really ruined that for me for all time. So thank you, Rick and Morty. But now every single time I see it, I'm like, nope. I can't. <laughs> like, I can't. Nope. That script is like, no, we can't do Like, I can't. I can't do it. I can't do it. Same thing with, honestly, when a script starts with a quote. I can't. It's like, it's like we've seen it so many times. And I know it seems really, you know, small of me mm-hmm. <laughs> to be like, any script that comes in with a quote, of course, I'm going to still read it. But like, I'm like, really? Another quote? Like, what's this quote supposed to tell me that your writing is not going to tell me? Just give me a great scene. Start me off with an amazing scene that is undeniable and and that's doing something new. It's trying. It's, try, you know, and I think that for anybody who's watched Daybreak, all I'm trying to do is try. I just want to do something fun and new. And that's why almost every episode of Daybreak has this, you know, new POV, new styles of storytelling that are based on old styles of storytelling. And like, how do we punctuate that? How do we make it new and unique and different? Um, so, so when I am reading a sample, it's like, yeah, surprise, draw me in. And, and, and I'm not alone. I don't think I'm alone in this, but by the way, it's like, you're not just writing for me. You're writing for so many people. You're writing for executives. You're writing for agents. You're writing for managers. You're writing to make your voice heard. And it's like, you're, you have this ability to plant your flag in the sand and say like, this is me on the very first page. And so that's what I'm looking for. And do you have any advice on handling a shorter meeting? Uh, what should you prepare? What is sort of the best way of approaching them? Um, the best meetings that I've had with writers, and these are hard meetings, you know, they're very, they can, and I would say they're also very intimidating on both sides, right? Because it's like, you, it's a speed date <laughs> where you have to judge in an hour on based on this one hour alone, do I want to spend all day, every day, more time with this individual than I want to spend with my family for the next 24 weeks of this writer's room? And you're basing this on on an hour of time. So, you know, these are difficult things. I think the thing that the ones that always work best for me are ones where you are certainly really familiar with the show that you're going in on. And that becomes more and more difficult. But for the case of Daybreak, a pilot existed. So you can, you know, I'm, I'm expecting people to be familiar with a pilot, familiar with what that pilot is attempting to do for a series. I'm expecting people to have questions about, well, what's the series going to be like? I'm expecting people to have questions about, like, how do you run a room? Like, what's this experience going to be like? I'm. I, it's not just about me asking questions of that are really those standard questions of, tell me about yourself. What do you like to watch? Have that answer to your question. <laughs> that question. It comes up every single meeting, not just like in a showrunner meeting, but like every single meeting that you're going to go on, everybody's going to say, what are you watching right now? And I, I, I'm, I'm shocked at the amount of times that people are like, I, you know, gosh, I don't know. <laughs> and let's, let's also be honest about this. It's one of the hardest things of, of our job is like, we have to, we have to watch TV. Like we work so hard all day long. I write every day, all day, sometimes till two o'clock in the morning. You have to make time to watch everything that's out there still because 
that's how we learn. That's how we get better as writers is watching what people are doing, the things that happen in Chernobyl or in Unbelievable. You know, those are these are fine writers who are doing at the top of their game. So you want to be not only inspired by what people are doing, but you also want to be jealous enough of what they were able to accomplish to put some fire in your gut to want to push you further. So always have an answer to that question. But for me, it's it's about like, you want to get really under the skin of, of the conversation, hopefully within that hour, hopefully within and, and whatever you can do to be as honest as you possibly can, that you can be as, as upfront about, you know, this is who I am in this writer's room and, and not like, you know, not, not faking it. If you don't want to be a part of it, like sometimes you get sent on jobs and sometimes you get into the writer's room or get into a meeting with a showrunner. And sometimes it's a show that you don't want to be on. (laughs) And, and often it will be, but if you're there and that's your opportunity and you do want to write on that show, like find the thing that is about that show that you want to be a part of. That's really genuine because there's nothing worse than being a showrunner and being like, Hey, did you read the script? And it's not like I'm there to ask for praise. I'm trying to find, do you want to be a part of this experience? Can you help man this staff? This is a Herculean task that we are attempting to accomplish. And I need to know that you're going to be there 100%. And not just because, yes, you want to be a writer. Yes, the wage is, is extremely you know good. Um, and yes, you get to write all day, every day. It's the best job in the world. But that you want to be there. Uh, Jeff Fierson, um, our amazing executive producer, always says, you know, you want volunteers, not recruits. That is consistently how I feel. I want people who want to be there, not who I have to convince to want to be there. So something that people don't think about as much is how you decide on your support staff. What are you looking for in writers, assistants, script coordinators, PAs, all that kind of thing? I'm looking for the same thing that I'm looking for with my writers, honestly. It's volunteers. It's not recruits. It's people who want to be there. Uh, it's not only like people who want to be there, but it's people who want to 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 use this opportunity for its utmost extent. I came up by being a writer's assistant and a researcher, and I've gotten coffee and I've gotten lunches, and that you're not there to that's your job, and you have to do that really. Well. And by the way, like you have to do that if that is your job, do it the best you can be the best person at getting coffee get it there when it's hot you know whatever you have to do if you have to you know break traffic you know get it get get things you know get the lunch there by 12 30 because then you'll have angry writers and angry writers are terrible we're <laughs> the worst um but you do have to do your job really well but you also have to take advantage of the opportunities that might be given to you Something that that I was very, like, I feel extremely fortunate to have mentors and role models like Tim Kring, who looked at the support staff as not only are you there to do these things, but like, how can we help you? And the door is always open to that. So if I had an idea for, for an episode in Crossing Jordan, I didn't have to wait around and say, you know, I'm going to wait politely for my turn. It is, I actively engaged with the writers to be able to say, how do I make this happen? Can I pitch you? Can I learn? Like, how do I, you have to help me, you know, learn. 
And, and nothing's going to happen if you don't engage in a dialogue about that, that actually happening. Um, so for me, it's a thing of our writer's room is always open to our assistance. If you want to come in and, and be a part of it, if you want to come in and learn how to take notes, if you want to see how we break story, awesome. If you have a pitch, come talk to me. Like my door is like, I never close my door. I never close my door because not only because I get lonely, um, but it's like, you know, I want to be, I want everybody to know, like, this is a really communal and, and, and hopefully warm atmosphere where everybody can feel supported. And, and that goes even, we, we just launched a daybreak podcast, which is, was a, a, a complete trip to, <laughs> to create. Um, and one of the things that, that I saw in the podcast, which was actually something that, that I also took from my time at Heroes was, oh, this is a wonderful opportunity to give assistance an opportunity to show me, you know, what, what their writing skills are. And because I, I need to know, I need to see. This is about, this is a, this is a world in which, you know, I need to understand, like, what, 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 you know, what's your talent? Like, what, like, tell me your voice, show me who you are. And this was an opportunity that wasn't, you know, the mothership of the show that needs to, you know, get delivered. Um, but another opportunity of like, okay, great. I can hand out episodes here as well so that we can all be writing the same show. We can all be rowing in the same direction and I have enough people to be able to accomplish it. It's what we did on Heroes. We had web comics and those web comics were largely written by the support staff in order to kind of not only give opportunities to write, but also to give, you know, everybody on, on the writing staff an opportunity to look at their writing and understand what's your voice? What are you good at? How can we help you along your writing path? Now, let's dig into the, the writer's room and uh, especially those first few days in the room. How, as a showrunner, do you get the ball rolling and set that creative culture with rules or guidelines or best practices, essentially? The first few days, I, I, I extend to the first few weeks, are, are really about getting that ball rolling. As a showrunner, I come in super prepared <laughs> of like not... You know, I don't think there's anything worse that a showrunner can do is come up in the first day and like all you have is a pilot script and be like, so <laughs> tell me what the show is <laughs> like that. It's never in my personality to be that guy. And certainly not like I, I, I think that's uncouth for a showrunner to do, especially when it's their show. I came in and said, this is what I've been thinking about. This is the Bible that I have so far. This is where I want to take the characters. This is, by the way, this is kind of what we want is how we want the show to twist. This is where it's going to go. These are some plot elements, but these are some more importantly, these are character elements and these are style elements. So we have a basis of things to talk about. Um, and not only that, not only having a basis of things to talk about, but also like every day, especially I mapped out, I'm just like meticulous about planning. So every day I was like, we're going to talk about this character this day. We're going to talk about this character this day and not attempt to like shove. Well, we have to break the whole season in two days. <laughs> then we have to get writing and then we have to, and then we have to have a script by the end of two weeks. It's like the, you have to set real goals that are attainable, especially, especially when a new group of people come together and you're just kind of smelling each other of like, especially me as showrunner smelling each other. Like, I'm like, who's going to contribute what? Who's talking? Who's not talking? Why? 
um, oh, who's who's pitching in 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 which direction? And this is also a show that is for me. Daybreak feels like a high wire act because the tone of the show is extremely unique. It is funny at the same time as it's emotional, at the same time as it's horror, at the same time as it's reverential to other shows that came before it. And it's a really hard target to hit for myself, let alone a writer who's coming into this, who's not inside my head, to be able to pitch a story and and for me to be able to, to process like, that's the show and that's not the show. It's not an easy thing to to be able to to really find the guidelines on. It's not as simple as 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 a procedural or another show that might be like not not to downplay a procedural, but like you go into a CSI or an NCIS and you're like, "Yep, this is how the crime is committed. This is how we solve it." We get a general tone of it. This is a much more amorphous thing. So a lot of those first few weeks even were about this is the kind like what's what is the tone of the show? How do we how are we able to define it? And and more importantly than being able to define it, really, it's how how am I able to express and communicate to the writers this is what feels right to me, and this is what doesn't feel right to me. This is what feels too dark, this is what feels too silly. Okay, that's the show. And and really, there's one um there's one reference in the first week. We broke a story. We were talking about a story for one of our main bad guys, Turbo. And we're talking about his backstory. And we started talking about the story of this kid who in his room had a picture of his dad. And the picture of his dad in the room was this impossibly handsome man who also had this ridiculous story of like how how amazing he was as a person. And then the next scene, they went to a CVS or they went to a store and his friends saw the same picture in a frame in the store. And his friend was like, <laughs> like what's going on here? Like um, <laughs> either your dad is a frame model and you made up the story about him, which is sad. Or, or you just went to the CVS and bought a picture frame with this guy in it and made up the story, which is sadder. And for me, that felt like I was like, that's the show. This is this is the tone of the show. It's funny. It's a little bit absurd. It's a little bit sad. And the payoff for it is also fantastic. But like, I was like, oh, that's the show. And it's a, it's a you know, that, that old adage of like, oh, I'll know it when I see it is really true. But you have to tell a bunch of other stories in order to get to that. And when it comes to that blue skying process, do you have sort of tent poles for what you want to happen in the story arcs and the character arcs set in mind? Or is that more flexible when you're coming into the room with all of that? The best thing about blue sky is that it's blue sky. I think it needs to have some focus in terms of we are talking about this character today. We had some certain plot points that we knew we wanted to hit. But what was more important to, to me about the storytelling process is always talking about character. And character will help you generate more plot points. Uh, we knew the end of, the, for example, we knew the end of the series um, when we were starting. So we knew what we're swimming towards. We ne- we have a goal. How you get to that goal, like that's the fun of, of the blue sky is, okay, we know we're heading. We know we're starting. What, hap- what, 
what can happen in between, we have some ideas, we have some twists, but really let's talk about the characters. And when we start talking about the characters, the twists, the plot points, they start emerging. Because once you start to get to know these characters more intimately, because on the in the pilot episode, or sorry, Netflix now calls it a prototype episode, <laughs> uh, which I can't wait for that to, like, I can't wait for the word pilot to be gone. Like, it's going to be gone from the lexicon, like, soon enough. And everybody's like, so tell me about the prototype episode. <laughs> so in the prototype, a lot of our supporting characters are sketches. We have ideas. We try to give them as much depth as we can, but they're sketches. And then it's incumbent upon the writer's room to really color them in and fill them out and talk about backstory and talk about who they are, talk about where they came from. And that and and those conversations, when it's about character, they can be really fruitful. So you can really talk about, we can talk about their backstory. Some of that backstory conversation becomes their flashback episode, becomes their flashback story. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's just about getting a greater understanding of of who they are and where they came from and what their forward momentum is and what they would do. And these were really very specific characters, very, very weird characters. So there was a lot of ground to talk about. Well, to that idea of framing the story around the characters, you play around a lot with your narrative structure, as you mentioned earlier, specifically how you approach telling your stories based on the characters, like the Goodfellas episode mm-hmm. or storyline or the, the sitcom model mm-hmm. for uh, Ms. Carmel. How do you decide what kind of meta narrative or format is right for each character? So, so something, I mean, I don't know if this is a personal belief or this is or where it kind of came from, but I believe, I believe we're all the heroes of our own stories. I believe we are all the stars of our own movies. And I believe that everybody's movie is completely different based on who they are. <laughs> and so that's the ethos that we took into this, this point of view style of storytelling. And really from while we were pitching Netflix, we always pitched in mind that we were doing a handoff, that we would do two episodes where Josh was telling the story in the beginning and it was really Ferris Bueller's day off and he was breaking the fourth wall and we were interacting with him and then he would get injured and in a really, in a way that was playing around with zombie tropes and he would get injured and he would basically be out of commission for the third episode. (laughs) And so what happens when your narrator is like out that somebody else would step up and say, I'm doing it. And not only would they step up and say, I'm doing it, but but a twist on a twist was like, I got so bored with, when I understand a story, I feel like I get bored. I get bored as a viewer. I'm like, great, I get where it's going. I'm checked out. I need the faith in the storyteller that like, I don't know where it's going. The shows that I love are where I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen next. And you have me wrapped. Congratulations. I can't wait to see what you're going to do. I have all my faith in you. And I want to be able to do that same thing where I can feel like giving the audience, I give the audience so much credit. And what I want is I want to surprise you. I want want to be able to do that. And this was a way of being able to do that where, where this character comes up and says, not only, not only am I taking over the show, I know you thought it was this way. It's not that way. And not only am I not, am I taking over, but I don't do this fourth wall breaking bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) I, I hate that. I'm a fan of Martin Scorsese, so we're cutting to my voiceover. And we do a whole new style of storytelling in that third episode. That was baked in. That was baked into our pitch to Netflix. I knew I wanted to do that. I knew there was this great opportunity to take what things like 
lost and orange is the new black had done and doing very you know flashback episodes for the for very specific characters but i wanted to go into take that into another place where also when you're in their pov it, the whole the whole tenor changes because they are not the other person and they are also not like they're not the showrunner like <laughs> they are themselves they are the character and they tell the story like how they're going to tell the story so that angelica told it in a good fellow's way and wesley was going to tell his you know in a samurai fashion with risen narrating it we always knew like he's going to have a narrator like <laughs> he, he's not going to tell his own story that's not how that's not how samurai tell their story they have narrators who tell their story and even the opening of it was I'm a big Samurai Jack fan, and I love the opening of Samurai Jack with Aku's voiceover. You know, Samurai Jack doesn't tell the story. Aku tells his story. Somebody else tells the Samurai story. So we knew, you know, and if you look if you look back at that episode, it's like my, my, my reverence to, you know, getting Tarkovsky is like, yeah, that opening is very much written tone. Like you have Rizzo using these words. Like it's even the way he says Compt. He says he doesn't say Compton, right? He says Compton. Because, because, because that's how you would say Compton in not only in the Riz of fashion, but in a, in a, in a samurai saga and a Conan, the barbarian style saga, you would, you would pronounce it Compton. Um, so, so we knew like we wanted to do these really specific POVs of each character. And that was going to be, you know, how, how we're going to have fun with the show. And it was based on, but it was based on the character themselves. It was based on, and when we got to Crumble's sitcom episode again, it was, who is Crumble? Crumble's a, Crumble's a somebody who went into teaching because she saw head of the class and welcome back Carter and, and stand to deliver and was like, oh yeah, I'm going to be that teacher. I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be this, I'm going to be in Saved by the Bell and <laughs> I'm going to be the teacher that when, when the kids' lives go crazy, they're going to come to me and I'm going to have all the sage wisdom mm-hmm. I'm going to be a role model and that's not what happened to her, but that's what she went into teaching feeling. So that made sense in terms of, of how we told her story. It's also feeling all those little heartbreaks when you you're watching and you, you see that they're not exactly, it's sort of like the conflict between expectations and reality of the sitcom versus the reality of the situation. Exactly. So how do you approach the process for breaking each episode as its own kind of thing, as well as working that into the broader narrative? So we, it's a it's a good question, and we also do we also do things very differently on on our show in terms of of writing. We break the story all together, and and it gets harder and harder as you go along. But but one of the things is I like to be there for for all the breaking. I try to be certainly as even heading into second season, it gets harder and harder and harder to be there. I've been in so many rooms where the showrunner doesn't <laughs> participate in the breaking, and then they come in and then they blow the whole story up. And, and then you're like, okay, we'll erase these whiteboards and we'll throw out these cards and we'll start over again. And I think we've all experienced, you know, those of us who have been in a writer's room have experienced that. So I like to certainly be as much a part of it. And certainly first season, I was almost there for certainly almost all the breaking of all the episodes because you do want to do it all together. I don't know. There, there's There's got to be some kind of German term that exists. And it's not only for the showrunner. It's like... It's 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 in the shot in front. Like it's some sort of, of thing that exists as a word. Like when you're not in the writer's room, when a story is broken, it doesn't matter what level you are, and you come back into that room, you're like, what is this? This is terrible. 
Like, what did you do? You guys went so off the rails. And it's just because you weren't there to, to see the story math and see the progress of how they got to where they're getting. I do think that there's value in, in having somebody come in later in the process to be able to be like, oh, well, I can poke holes in it, not to destroy it, but like, what did you do here? That said, I think it's better when everybody's together. <laughs> and and this kind of, whether it's my socialist, you know, background or a jet, my, my, my communist agenda, it, it kind of goes back to heroes, actually. On heroes, everybody wrote on almost every single episode. We really did. We broke by character. We wrote, everybody wrote different characters. And it was a way of generating scripts, not only quicker, because when you're staring down an outline or writing a script, you know, if, if it's one person staring down a 20 page outline that you need to now turn into a 50 page script, you're like, whew, dig in, you know, people who are fast can do it in a week, maybe, but that's really, that's pretty quick. Usually it takes two weeks. Sometimes it could take longer and, and it's, it's all resting on one person's shoulders. What we did on Heroes was everybody took different characters. You're staring down five scenes, maybe, maybe six scenes. Six scenes. You can do six scenes in a day if you're really fast, two days, maybe three. And you can assemble a script really quickly. So you can go from breaking it all together. Really, when you're breaking it, we do really detailed breaks. This is the scene. This is the order. This is what the episode's going to look like. And then when you're off to outline, and then when you're off to, to script, it's 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 about being as detailed as possible. So you're going in knowing this is what the scene is, and this is how I can expand on it. But what you really want to do is get a script out early. What I want to do is have a script as soon as possible so that you can start reacting to the script. Everything from breaking to script is very amorphous. It's only when you're looking at the script itself that you're able to really dig in and say, this is working, this is not working. And I want to get to that place as quick as possible. So I do want writers writing on every script. The other thing that, that it does is not only generate it quickly, it gets everybody writing the voice of the show a lot quicker. That's the most difficult thing to accomplish is being able to write the show. We all have such you know unique voices. We are all individuals. And I, and I would say this is not like, this is not like, oh, you have to write like me. You have to write like the show. And there's a very big difference. And the more opportunity you have to write, the better you're going to be at writing like the show. And because if you're sitting around waiting for your script, if your script is episode seven or episode eight, God forbid, and you're just sitting around like reading other scripts, you're not executing. You're not actually putting your fingers on the keyboards and trying to write the dialogue or trying to write the scene work so you can understand the show. So the more you can do that, the better you are at, at writing the show. No one's going to get it right the first time. No one's even going to write necessarily the second time or third time. But by the fourth time you're writing a scene and you're deeper into the episodes, you're understanding this is the tone of the show, this is how it's working, the easier it becomes to be able to actually like, oh, I can totally write this show. I, and, and it's something that's very difficult. It's difficult to lose your identity to a show's identity, but it's really something important that we all have to, we all have to do as TV writers. So what were the, the conversations in the room about either leaning in or subverting the expectations of young adult content? My mind also goes to 108, which is all about sort of like Sam's story and mm -hmm. turning it on its head. Instead of the Josh defining her story, it's about her defining herself. What were the conversations in the room about all that? Um, the consistent, you know, I think that anytime anything felt familiar, 
or safe. It was always like, like, no, <laughs> we got, we have to throw it out. We have to start again, or we have to find why it feels familiar. And how do you turn it on its head? You know, certainly when we're talking about the genre aspect, the easiest example of that, which again was something very early on Brad and I had talked about was it was influenced by the graphic novel itself was cutting off the hand <laughs> that you get bit by it by a zombie you're turning into a zombie, you better cut off your hand. And we've seen hands being cut off all over the place. So we knew it would be really funny and it would be the most teenage boy thing I could think of was to get bit, to decide I got to do this (laughs) and then to learn you didn't have to do it is like the most Josh (laughs) thing imaginable. And, And yeah, it plays in genre, but it also plays as like, that's what a teenage boy does. A teenage boy looks before he leaps or leaps before he looks rather, you know, you, you, you make mistakes, you make awful mistakes. And here the mistakes are so high. You're losing, you're, you've wounded your hand and you've lost a finger just because you didn't communicate with somebody. So it was always about taking every single trope. And, and it's some, it's something that we, we talk about all the time. And I really believe is like, People tropes and cliches are not bad things. Like they're they're really wonderful and they really are effective. And they're effective because we've all digested so much content. We're so literate in everything that's happened that what you're trying to do is like you put you allow the trope to exist and put it out there. So there's familiarity to the audience. The audience understands, I get what you're trying to do. I understand it. And then it's incumbent upon the writer and, and especially the show to be like, Okay, well, now now that you understand it, now we get to turn it a little bit in another direction so it can become something just slightly different. Not to, like, reinvent the wheel. I don't think we can reinvent these tropes. They're very primal storytelling. You don't have to... And, like, and when you approach it as, like, we have to reinvent the trope, reinvent the wheel. It's like, that's a really hard thing to do. I'm not that smart of a guy or not that smart of a writer to be able to accomplish that. Like, I, I know... That is a fool's errand. However, there is something about using the nature of the cliche and using the nature of the trope, acknowledging even that it's a trope and a cliche, that you're able to then subvert it. For us, that was really important, and it was always important. POV is something that we talk about a lot in the story, in the in the writer's room and in the story, and how POV is unreliable. POV is really specific to that character, and you can't trust these characters. Uh, because they're telling you their story and them telling you their story doesn't mean that that's the actual story. <laughs> it doesn't mean that that there's any truth in that. And then we also wanted to play with the audience's expectations of that as well. There's something really interesting that happens that uh, certainly some people have been picking up about Josh's narration is Josh begins the season as, as Ferris Bueller and he believes he's in control of his own narrative but by talking to the audience, by engaging the audience, what happens is, and what we start doing, not only in episode two, but in episode nine as well, is kind of telling him, no, the audience is in control of what we want you to do. You think you're in control. We're going to take that power away from you. We're putting you in flashbacks that you don't want to be in. We're making you reveal things about yourself that you don't want to reveal and making you uncomfortable and taking away any agency that you have. 
And yeah, we're doing that as writers, but I feel like that's what the audience is. Uh, it's meant to, to be from the audience's point of view is me as, as the writer is not necessarily attacking this as like, this is the story I want to tell. It's I'm attacking it as like, I want to put this character through the ringer. I want to make his life hell, especially a character who starts as cocky as Josh, who thinks he's in control. I want to undermine him at every step of the way. I think that that's when you take this trope of <laughs> whether it's Ferris Bueller or Malcolm in the middle, and you're able to say like, hey, here are these, these confident characters who think they're so smart, and I'm going to show you just how not smart they are. And I think from that, you start to get something new and unique and different. And, and for me, you know, a fun storytelling experience. So uh, underneath kind of the heightened reality and the absurdity, how do you uh, ensure you're making it truthful to the kind of lives and experience of young adults and particularly, you know, more diverse experiences of race and sexuality and things like that? So I think that the, I, I like I like saying that the storytelling is a magic trick. <laughs> and what we're trying to do is it's like it's the, it's the beginning of the prestige when Michael Caine tells you how the magic trick is done. Like, I feel like we're doing that constantly <laughs> and if anybody who hasn't seen the prestige there's like there's a ton of youtube videos that go into like michael kane at the beginning of the prestige watch them it's so cool and it's like you're telling it you're setting up a story and then you tell everybody this is the story and then you subvert that expectation to create a different result i think this the, the same is true for the show and if you look at the narrative of season one the beginning of the season is fun and light we have hints of emotion and grounded reality. It's always important to like, we have those aspects of it needs to feel true. It needs to feel like it's, it's a highly surreal absurdist world that we are living in, but there needs to be moments of emotion that make you feel like that's okay. That felt real. That is grounded. That's a real reaction. I would definitely do that. Look, if the world ended, I would 100% go to Dodger stadium, hook up my Netflix to the jumbotron and, and watch it there because that's what I want to do. That's, you know, that's who I am. But it's seeding in these moments of, of, of real emotion that you start to feel things. And then you notice a genuine shift in the storytelling that the storytelling gets much more emotional and much more grounded the deeper that we go into the season. And so we are, we are playing a magic trick. We are trying to fool the audience of like, if we came out and we're Dawson's Creek from the get-go, everybody would get a little bit bored. We need to entertain you. We need to show you how fun we are. We need to show you how insane we are. We need to take these big risks with doing a Goodfellas episode and a Samurai episode. And then once you've earned the audience's trust, and it's really about earning their trust, then do we get to say, great, we've reached this point in our relationship. <laughs> now let's get a little serious. Now let's start talking about some real issues and start talking about real emotion. So when you get to episode eight and episode nine, and you start really, and especially episode eight, and we we take away any artifice of our storytelling, we take away any any tricks, any of the narration, any of the the writing on the screen, any of the like, all, we take all the bombastic things that we love doing, and we do love doing them, and we we peel it all away and be like, here's a story between two kids. It's all we're gonna do, and we're just gonna tell this really simple story. It's almost like a one act play and it's set in one location. And we just are going to do this. Now we've earned that we've earned the audience's trust to be able to tell them that story and not give them, you know, what I like to call our ADHD show that's screaming, pay attention to me, pay attention to me. Now we can settle down. 
how we're able to tell genuine stories, which is the second part of your question, which is really important, is I rely on the biographies and the storytelling and the experiences of the writing staff. Wesley was always this this, this wonderful gay African-American samurai. That's what he was. I didn't realize, and it was based on things because I'm a fan of Wu-Tang and you know, I had seen it, just recently seeing Kendrick Lamar come out with like, I'm not Kendrick Lamar anymore. This new album is Kung Fu Kenny. So I knew that there was an intersection between Asian culture and African-American culture. And, you know, I, I was a fan of The Last Dragon. <laughs> so so I also I, I, I'm familiar with that and taking all those things that I'm familiar with creating a character. But it's not until our staff writer, Kalea Stallworth, came along and said, well, do you know why? there's that intersection. And I was like, I don't, <laughs> I, I have no idea. And she grew up in, in New York. She actually grew up down the hall from method man. And she explained, you know, something that I had no idea about, which is, well, you know, these young black men and especially in Wu Tang, they didn't have the money to go out to the movies. And so they watched Kung Fu cinema and that's what they had access to. That was their media. And that informed, that's why they, became the Wu-Tang Clan because it's what they watched. It's the media that they consumed and it's why it became a part of their DNA. And I was like, this is amazing. You know, this has to, this has to be part of the story. Like, how do we integrate this into the storytelling? How do we make this part of the story that we tell that it's not just a caricature of Wesley, but he has genuine depth, not only genuine depth, but also like there's a history of where he came from. There's a reason why he exists the way he exists. It's also why we knew we needed Rizzo to be his narrator and knew that would be a perfect choice. But it's based on relying on your writing staff and making your writing staff feel comfortable enough to be able to share their own stories, be able to talk about these things and knowing that I'm not capable of talking about these things. I have, I have my depth of experience. I have my emotional baggage. I know what I'm capable of doing, but it really takes this writer's room to be able to create all the threads of the show that make it the show. Now let's jump into the production aspect. And first of all, what was it like putting together the production team, the heads of departments, and uh, how far into the writing process were you at that point? What I would recommend for any showrunner is have a director as amazing as Brad Payton, <laughs> who has worked on really good and really big features. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, I'm joking and I'm not joking at the same time. Brad and, 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 and his executive producing partner, Jeff Fearson, had been able to work with and accrue a really talented group that they had worked with on from movie to movie to movie. And he had his people. And, you know, there's nothing better than relationships. Um, especially if you have shorthand, you have the ability to really say, this is what I want, this is, you know, and, and be able to communicate it really effectively. Not only communicate it effectively, but inspire them to do their best work. Brad came, honestly, with a lot of these department heads in place. Michael Ground was our wardrobe designer. He worked with Brad and Jeff on Frontier. Um, Barry Chussed is our production designer. He worked on San Andreas and Rampage. Denise Shamian was our casting director. Again, San Andreas, Rampage. <laughs> like I was basically handed an amazing team that I was like, these guys are, they're, they're awesome. They're at the top of their game. They do great work. And what was incumbent upon me was I was the outsider to this relationship. 
Brad had worked with them, like they knew everything. And so I had a whole different issue kind of coming in. It wasn't about like, okay, I'm going to find my department heads and, and, and find them. It was like, oh, I'm joining a new team and I'm the new kid. And so what it was about for me was also, look, and it comes down to that same thing we we're talking about before about show running versus show curating was, okay, here are really talented people. I would choose these people if it was just me. But now I need to get them on board with the with the show and the vision. At that point, when when we started staffing up and the room had been going for a while, we'd been generating our Bible. We had a script for the second episode. We had a bunch of material. And it was not only it was not only like sharing that material with them. Um, I love pitching. I didn't used to love pitching. <laughs> we could certainly talk more about that. But I do I do really enjoy pitching now. And it's something that is really important for, for communication skills of with your network executives and with your department heads. And one of the things that we did really early on was I made sure we had meetings with all these department heads in LA. We shot in Albuquerque. And before that, pr- the production train started moving really, really quickly. We had them all in to the writer's room and we walked them all through the season and it was about having these ongoing conversations with, you know, whether it was, you know, Jaron Prezant, our, uh, our DP or Barry, our production designer, having these really long conversations. This is where it's going. You guys can have faith that, that we as the writers, <laughs> that, that me as the executive producer, I know the story that we're telling. And here are all these levels and levels of details, not only levels of details of what the show is, but the tone and the emotion we're trying to, to go for. So it was giving them all the tools that they needed to actually build the world. Like one thing that I really carry forward as an ethos is I hope I'm a good writer. <laughs> That's what I can bring to the process. I am not a production designer. I am not a director of photography. I cannot tell the director of photography, you should really use this lens. Like, unless I'm directing an episode, like, that is not any conversation I should really be a part of. What I really can do is through the words, through the pitches, through the getting everybody on board and making them see this is the world we're trying to create, is allowing them to get as inspired by the material as I am by creating the material. And when you get that kind of synergy, you really get amazing product. I mean, the thing, uh, one of the, the aspects of the production design of the show is every one of our tribes in the series has their own tag. That was not written. That was not in any script. That was Barry, who was walking around Albuquerque, who was, was just in love with the show. And he's like, everybody should have their own tag. They should all have their own unique identity and their unique tag. And I'm going to come up with tags for everybody. And I was like, this is fantastic. Like that feeling of like somebody coming back to you and saying like, I I get what you're going for. How about this? How can I plus it in this way? And they do. And you're like, oh my God. It's like, it's so funny. It's so amazing. It's so iconic. This is great. And that happened across the board. Michael Grant did the same thing as in in the wardrobe design. You know, we worked intimately with him, but I'm not a wardrobe. Like I, I don't know these things. I definitely like the whole shoe culture of the show was so not me was definitely Brad Payton, you know, and was definitely Michael ground knowing like, yeah, 
off-white Air One Jordans, that is what everybody wants. And so, of course, Josh is going to be wearing them. And by the way, we have to actual, you know, those are actual off-whites. Those are, those shoes that Josh are wearing are (laughs) $3,000 shoes. And and when we got audited by Netflix, Netflix was like, wait, what? (laughs) But those are just Air Jordans. Like, you could get those for like 200 bucks. And they're like, we're like, no. People would know, like, we're not recreating off-whites. We're getting actual off-whites. There's authenticity. Our audience is going to know the difference. We are actually having him wear these $3,000 shoes. And that level of, of authenticity, of reality, that's what you want out of your department heads. And how did you approach uh, casting those roles, whether it's the bigger names like Matthew Broderick or RZA, down to some of the more unknown younger actors? So the casting process was kind of awesome. Denise, our casting director, when she read the script, we had an initial meeting. And she, she, she said something that I was actually really troubled by at the time. She said, you're going to see a lot of people for these roles. And one person is going to walk in and they're going to be it. And because the, the writing was so specific and the, the characters were so specific. Like, look, you're not going to have a lot of choices. <laughs> Sorry. You're going to have one choice. And it's going to take time and we're going to have to f- search for that person. But that person's going to come in. They're just going to nail it. And that was true for most every single one of the kids. There was only a single person who came in and they were them. It was the case with Olivia, who plays Angelica. It was the case with Austin Crute, who plays Wesley. It was the case with Greg Cassian, who plays Eli. It was the case with Sophie Simnet, who plays Sam. It was like, they, they we saw them and we're like, yep. Same thing with Jean de Godlock, who plays Mona Lisa. Like, it was like, nope. There's no other choice. And, and, and just, to, you know, a little, another peek behind the curtain. Usually what happens in the process of casting, we see who we like. We present that to the network. The network makes the ultimate decision. Usually in the process, you present two, three choices so that they feel like they are also, <laughs> they feel like they are making the choice. In all of these cases, we're like, here's one. We're just giving you this person because we f- we believe that they are it. We don't want to give you anybody else. That's it. That's them. And when you can feel that way, and, and Netflix felt that way, you know, like, you're like, they're going to be great at this. And then the reaction that happens afterwards, which is also amazing, is these are also actors who really fully, inha- since, they, since they nail the audition, they really fully inhabit the role. So then you are able to start to write to their strength. The character changes based on the actor. Certainly the case with with Austin playing Wesley and Greg playing Eli. They are those characters. <laughs> they are those roles. There are things that came out of their mouth that like, oh, I'm putting that. I have to like, like you're writing the character yourselves at the, at some point because they just so much are like the things that came out of their mouth. Like I could not, I, I could not write <laughs> like the things that came out of Greg's mouth just around Video Village. Like, oh, yeah, that's something that Eli would say. And so we would keep a running list of things that Greg would say so that we could put it in his mouth. Prime example, <laughs> he, in, in episode seven, he says, sun's out, gun's out. And we're like, yep. <laughs> that's because we were hanging out in Video Village one day. Sun in Albuquerque rarely shines in the winter. It came out. He took off his jacket. He's like, yeah, sun's out, gun's out. And we're like, yep, that's going in the show. With actors and characters like like Matthew Broderick or Riza, that's a lot of luck. <laughs> we we actually wrote the role of Principal Burr in Baron Triumph for Matthew Broderick. 
since we knew that the identity of Josh was really based in this Ferris Bueller's Day Off world, and we knew the role of the principal was going to be a major role for season one, we're like, yeah, the perfect person to cast for this is Matthew Broderick. How great would it be to show that Ferris grew up to be Principal Rooney <laughs> and is now on the opposite side of this? And that was actually Brad Payton's idea. And then when, once Brad had that, I was like, yes, that's perfect. Like, we need to write to this. So it became about like, okay, now the character needs to have a lot of Matthew-isms and watching election and like, okay, what? how is he going to nail this? And you're really told in every experience I've also had, like, you're never going to get your first choice. It never happens. <laughs> like, you can write something and hope and, get, and go out to them. And we were told, Denise is like, you're never going to get Matthew. Like, Matthew doesn't do television. And he certainly doesn't do things that are also really Ferris-oriented. We're like, well, please, you know, let's let's try. And he started engaging in the material. The only, you know, he had, the only problem that he had with it with it was we uh, he he was concerned about the level of cursing in the show. <laughs> he was very concerned about that. He had nothing, no concerns about his character. He was just like, these kids curse a lot, and and I was like, well, well, kids kids do curse a lot and really creatively. And and I wanted to be genuine about that experience that especially if parents weren't around, kids would curse even more and kids are artistic when they curse. And that's something I wanted to take into the the world of the show. I wanted to make our cursing really, you know, an art form for some of these kids. He started to get around that. He's like, but there was one particular thing that, you know, he said we were being very disparaging to, to the female anatomy in the show and, and, and he's, you know, he's a father of daughters and he was a little concerned about that. And so we made a promise that we would be equal opportunity offenders. And that if we did more jokes about male anatomy and, and really were a fairly weighted show, that that was something that he could get on board with. Before we go, we have a few final questions for you. Number one, what are you watching on TV right now? <laughs> <laughs> I am watching The Watchmen, which uh, I, I, I feel like Damon made that on purpose so that he could say, who's watching The Watchmen? You're yeah. like, I'm watching The Watchmen. Uh, I'm watching and loving The Watchmen, Gandhi Tarkovsky's Primal. I'm watching Atypical. And I just finished uh, Chernobyl, Succession, and Unbelievable. Oh, and I just started His Dark Material uh, last night. Mm-hmm. Nice. Do you have any final advice for TV writers? Yeah. <laughs> Here's my, my, my big advice for TV writers is keep writing. I have a stack of scripts in my garage of all the spec. I came up at a time when you had to write spec scripts um, of other shows, of existing shows. You didn't, you know, yes, you had to rev original pilot, but mostly you were writing spec scripts. And I have a Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And I have a Law and Order SVU. And I have an Ed. Guys, remember Ed? Yes. I have a Jackie Chan Adventures because I wanted to. <laughs> maybe I was gonna be, maybe I was gonna be a, a, a an animation writer. <laughs> and I love Jackie Chan Adventures. I have a Smallville. I have a, a house. I have so many. <laughs> Did I say shield? I have a shield. <laughs> I have so many specs that that was my film school. My film school was devouring shows, understanding how they worked, trying to execute in the voice of Sean Ryan and Joss Whedon, trying to understand how they crafted a scene and how they wrote their dialogue. 
and not stopping, not, you know, not stopping, not only for the fact of myself of like, okay, I'm going to write this. I'm going to write this spec. I'm going to send it to agents. I'm going to get an agent. They're going to staff me. It's going to be awesome. And then you send it out to agents and then nothing happens. Instead of stopping, I wrote another spec. Maybe this one, (laughs) maybe this one will be better. Maybe this is the one that's going to get me some attention. Maybe this is the one that's going to help me. Same thing is true with my pilot, any pilot I wrote. I have a stack, besides the stack of specs, I have a stack of pilots that, by the way, no one should really read, but (laughs) they are there and they are all about finding my voice. What's going to make me a better writer? What story do I want to tell? How do I want to tell my stories? And they range from things that are very similar to daybreak to things that are utterly different to procedurals, to crazy ideas I had to comedies, to anime, Mm -hmm. (laughs) to, to, to an animated half hour, uh, you know, kid show. Because again, with my Jackie Chan adventures, like, Oh, maybe that's what I'm going to do now. I'm trying to find myself. I'm trying to find myself. It's who I am as a writer. And so not only is it about consistently writing, but it's about consistently putting out that new material, to the world so that your agents can see that you're writing new stuff. So your friends can see you're writing new stuff. So you can keep on trying and only by doing that, only by executing and still true to this day, I'm writing daybreak. I'm also writing stuff for myself. I'm constantly trying to change as a writer, trying to grow as a writer. And only by doing that, will you actually get the job? Will you actually become the writer that you want to be? Lastly, do you have any resources for our listeners, be it books, apps, websites, anything you can think of that is useful? Oh my goodness. I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's, um, yes, there's one book. This is going to be a really strange reference because <laughs> it's not for TV writing, but it is. Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics is a fantastic book. And it's not, it doesn't normally apply to comic books, really. It applies to an innate sense of why comic books are a genre and a storytelling device and how their history but it is just a it's just a wonderful book that really gets into the core nature of how we interact with content, how we interact as an audience to something like comic books, how it's an inter- it is actually an interactive medium and I highly recommend it. I think it changed my writing a ton. Great. Well, before we go, don't forget that we are now on Patreon. So if you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Paper Team via our Patreon page at paperteam.co slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You'll get exclusive content, opportunities, and merch, and we can keep producing a great show for you every week. So thanks to all our listeners for taking the time to tune in, and thank you very much to Aaron for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. And you can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 159. As always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. And uh, where can our listeners find you on social media if you want to be found? Um, sure. Come and find me. Um, I'm not great at social media, but I'm on Instagram at Aaron Eli Colite and I'm on Twitter at Aaron Colite. Excellent. And uh, if you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas for future episodes, you can always send them to ask at paperteam.co. And what are we doing next week? Uh, next week, we'll be doing our uh, monthly paper scraps for November. So we'll be answering all of your TV writing questions that you write in, as well as covering kind of some of the news topics of the month. So we'll see you all then. All right. See you there.